I think that every say it depends where you are, what neighborhood, what city, what community you're in. You can't say something that might work well in, in New Orleans could work equally as well as in Santa Barbara or Los Angeles or Detroit. Um, and so I, I think at a high level, it's first saying what, what the site presents you, the opportunities that come your way. As a real estate developer, there are, we, we have notions of the perfect site or the perfect project you can do, but it, it's almost this, um, this endless pursuit to find that. And in many ways, there are trade-offs where you say, okay, well, I might not be able to imbue all of my vision on this site, but 80% or 90% is good. And maybe the other 10 to 20% are new influences that I wouldn't have considered. Whether the scale is larger than I would have thought, smaller and a different type of neighborhood. Um, I would say that the through lines that run through the, the ideal type of project would be, has to be walkable. I, I think that is the most important part of creating a piece of fabric that could then be almost a nucleus that extends outwards and outwards that you have these fantastic places like a Copenhagen or, or, uh, or London or Amsterdam, these places that I visited um, that were shaping this perspective. Um, because otherwise, to your point, Mark, you're, you're almost a singular building as opposed to a part of a broader community. Um, and I think we've learned our lessons that no matter how great a singular structure is, uh, it can never make up for uh, the, the surroundings or it can never supersede uh, its neighbors or its broader community. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 66 of the Placemaking Podcast. We can't wait to share this next conversation with all of you here today. Now, today on the show, we have Kobe Lefkowitz. Kobe is the co-founder and CEO of Backyard. They're an innovative real estate brand and operator that designs, develops, and manages multifamily housing in one of the country's most dynamic, walkable neighborhoods. By leveraging exceptional design language and tech-enabled property management, this backyard platform is transforming the way people live in and experience the communities around them. Kobe is a leading writer in the worlds of urban planning and real estate development with a focus on exploring how to create more resilient, more walkable, more dynamic, and more people-oriented communities. And that's where I found him on Twitter writing some great content. Now he's also a graduate of the University of Virginia and holds a Bachelor's of Science in Urban Environmental Planning and a certificate from the McIntyre School of Commerce. In this episode we learned about the true meaning of equitable development, how it can be used in practice. We also discussed the most important attributes of a successful development project. And last but not least we discussed his year of building optimism project and great lessons learned from it. There is tons of great information in this episode. I greatly appreciate Kobe for spending some time. So I hope you enjoy. As always, if you have enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in the industry. There will be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode. <laughs> I'm glad everyone's here. Got uh, 
Mark also on the line and hey. Kobe. Kobe is the uh, co-founder and CEO of Backyard, uh, innovative real estate brand and operator that designs, develops, and manages multifamily housing in the country's most dynamic, walkable neighborhoods. And I can't wait to hear more about it. Uh, so without further ado, Kobe, would you like to give us a little bit more about your history? And then we'll kind of transition that into the rest of the discussion. Absolutely. Well, first, thanks so much, Matt and Mark, for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited to get the opportunity to talk with you guys today and have been a big fan of a lot of the previous conversations you've had. Uh, so it, it's an honor and, and a privilege to be uh, the latest in, in the list of conversations you've had. I will welcome, man. Thanks for your time. Yeah, this could be fun. Uh, we, we had a brief discussion before this uh, a week or two ago and talked through some of this, and I wish we could have recorded it then. But there's, there's plenty more on this one, so I can't wait to dive in. So I guess, Kobe, give us a little bit more of your history, your background, where you came from, and where you're at right now. Yeah, yeah happy to. So I'm a New Yorker, born and raised just outside of the city. Um, it's, you know, my, my background was, was really as an athlete, as a basketball player. Uh, my whole life, I'd say, through high school and then the beginning of college, um, I was, I played college basketball. I went to NYU, um, was also in the real estate development program there. And that was really my, my entire identity. I had been very interested in real estate development, architecture, learning what urbanism was. I, I can't quite say at that point I was an urbanist and I know we'll talk about that later, what that exactly means. Um, but that, that was kind of the identity. And, and when you're younger and you're in those circles, uh, th there can certainly be blinders. That, that are put on you. And, um, you know, everyone's, everyone retires at some point uh, from, from the game and, or whatever you might be playing. Um, and, and mine came, uh, you know, beginning of college. Um, at that point, I had been in New York for school, was doing some internships there, um, had all of my friends and family there and assumed I'm gonna stay here after school. I, I don't know if I'll, I'll ever get out. Uh, you know, I have to experience something new. Right. Uh, I, I transferred down to University of Virginia after my freshman year at NYU, um, kind of on a whim. My brother, who my older brother, by five or six minutes, uh, were quadruplets, which is really it's it's only weird when you say it uh, oh, wow. <laughs> it's only out of the normal. Uh, but my big brother, by six or seven minutes, was down there, visited him on a whim one weekend, said, you know, this is this is what college is, is all about. And Charlottesville is just a really beautiful a uh, little city in the South to give me a very different perspective than one that I had growing up, uh, up in New York. Um, and I'd say at that point, my trajectory of, of real estate and urban planning at that point, I, I enrolled in the architecture school, really began to, to take shape. And that was a very meaningful uh, next step and, and I guess pivot in, or really an evolution in, in that journey. And happy to talk through a little bit more about that. Um, but graduated from the University of Virginia with uh, from the architecture school with a degree in urban planning. Uh, went to DC, worked for a mid-sized REIT, doing some asset management, a little bit of acquisitions, a little development called Washington REIT. Ultimately, found my way back up to New York, where I worked with a firm called Ash NYC for about three years. Incredibly, an incredible experience. I was able to touch every aspect of the development process, leaning really into what makes for good places, 
uh, on the ground level in the streetscape. You don't see this at most development firms, uh, but most of the people who were on the acquisition development team had planning backgrounds. So there was a very different way of, of thinking through the built environment than you might traditionally get at a development shop. And the majority of the people that, uh, that I worked next to were designers. Ash is, I believe, might be misappropriating it, but I think they're the largest stager in America. Um, so staging business in New York was huge. You're not necessarily dealing with people who are underwriting 100 deals a week next to you as you might get in, in larger development shops. Um, you're sitting next to people who are creating mood boards and listening to, uh, I joke, but 70s Bollywood remixes and <laughs> 1960s reggaeton uh, with the Japanese inspired you. And it, it's a, it was a really cool environment to be in that I think shaped my understanding of real estate being beyond this transactional uh, Excel driven discipline and something that is much more encompassing of creating places that uh, are, are more comprehensive. So that that's kind of takes me to, to where I am today, where in the last year, I am now working with a few partners at Backyard um, doing missing middle infill development, primarily in San Diego. And we're spreading our wings a little bit, uh, flexing uh, the property management, third-party property management service that we're building out uh, mobile app experience and an entire tech platform for, which is really exciting too. Wow, that's a great background. I'm really, really impressed by the fact that you leave New York City so young because I feel like it's one of those places that you know you get that experience of um, you know making it part of your persona. I think, and I think being from there, you know, like the opportunity to leave, I think, is something that many people sort of uh, you know seek out. You know, a different place or a different uh, lifestyle. But man, to be able to go back and then have all of that experience wrapped up, it's great. Yeah. I'm excited, excited to hear you, uh, you know, in, in the same sentence, like talk about mood boards, but then also talk about the spreadsheets, because there's uh, obviously a lot of skill sets and uh, ideas and, and work that go into the real estate development world. But is there some defining moment um, that you knew, um, you know, really deeply that you wanted to get into real estate? The, the first experience I have really noticing what real estate was as a profession was with the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. I'd seen an article, I had to have been 13 or 14 about the tallest tower in the world that, that was being constructed. And when, when you're younger, and I think it's good to, to continue this sort of enthusiasm and excitement about big and, and, and large projects, wherever they may be, I was really enamored and drawn by that. I was like, oh my God, you, you could do that. You, you could, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, create the largest building in the world. What, is, what does that look like? What's the thought process? How did somebody arrive at, at, at that, that we're going to build, you know, I think a nearly 3000 foot tall tower in the middle of, of the desert. Um, and it, it kind of kickstarted this thought process of, what it takes to, to have that impact on the built environment. Um, my first foray, you know, after reading a couple of articles that, that summer, I believe it was going to high school, was taking architectural class. Because I, I saw buildings through the architectural discipline. That, that's something that I think kids are more familiar with. You can design buildings. You can, that's a real profession. Uh, took a class my freshman year. Absolutely loved it. Was terrible. I think it might have been my worst grades <laughs> in high school, um, but I loved every minute of it. I just don't have the level of technical skill required to, to be an architect or to be a designer. 
And I have the utmost respect for those who do, um, because I've even going through architecture school and slogging through some of the studios, you know, on one side in the architecture discipline and then urban planning on the other. Um, that that's something that it's just not for me. It's not my skill set. <laughs> um, but but I really enjoyed that process, and so I thought, okay, I'm not an architect, not for me. Uh, is there another way that I can have some level of involvement in this process? And I think through reading a little bit more, uh, whether articles, books, talking colloquially with people about the industry, this notion that you don't have to be the designer to aggregate this process together. Uh, you could be a real estate developer, right? This term was, was very new to me in, in high school when I was first foraying or en entering into the field um, and said, that's very cool. That's something that I can do. I can perhaps imbue the notions of design I might have, uh, use some numbers, not, not a ton. Second to, to architecture, my worst class was calculus. And <laughs> anyone who knows me through high school, through college, um, every class was great. I really enjoyed it. I uh, had great relationships with professors. It was more tenuous uh, in calculus. <laughs> so, <laughs> simple math, financial math, great. Uh, but, you know, less technical skills, the better. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so backtracking a little bit here, but, you know, you talked about the, the Burj Khalifa uh, being something just, be, you know, just amazing, you know, and just awe-inspiring. But mm -hmm. to, to bring that back a little bit, Bora, has there been a place that you visited that more so transformed the way you thought about place in general, not necessarily structures, but the built environment. And uh, if so, can you kind of take us there, you know, visually in your mind and, and, you know, how did it, how did it change the way you thought about how things could be developed? Absolutely. So I think in many ways, the Burj Khalifa for me, as I think larger shiny objects are for, for other people are the gateway into the field. You're not going to, at least it wasn't the case for me, um, or if you aren't born into it, just walk along the street when you're younger or first experienced profession uh, and say, that's a really nice duplex. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's the thing that's um, I, I'm going to try to create more of and understand how that works within a larger uh, fabric of a city. Um, so I think those large and shiny objects certainly play a role, but it's not what I'm doing today and not necessarily what I'm interested in doing um, because of the experience I've, I've, I've had since then. Um, I think the first moment that I, I realized I wanted to do something a little bit more incremental, fine-grained, and more focused on the placemaking is when I was in Charlottesville, uh, which is just a, a beautiful small town for, for anyone who hasn't visited. Um, it, it's kind of quintessential small city Americana, but, but within this vernacular of the South, um, you know, you have the downtown pedestrian mall, which, which is fantastic. And you have Jeffersonian influence all throughout the grounds of UVA and, and Charlottesville and then broader in Albemarle County in, in central Virginia, um, that it's this, this notion of how do we create places that are timeless in some sense that were shaped and crafted by hands 200, 300 years ago and still are, are not just beloved, um, but, but used on a daily basis. Um, I think that in some ways was, was lost on me being from New York where it's this bigger is better mentality. And every building that you walk by is a larger and glassier skyscraper, um, which, which is fantastic. And there's 
development pattern and, and land use economic reasons for why New York looks the way it does and Charlottesville looks the way it does. It's not everywhere it should look like like every other place. Um, but I think going through through architecture school in that uh, background and, and with that perspective of this town that had been incrementally developing itself over the course of uh, several hundred years to the lovely place it is today, that there was a different way to build places that I hadn't been experienced with being from New York uh, and, and outside of the city, um, the development patterns of Westchester, while older um, than, than many places in America, still have those patterns of sprawling land use and single family homes and strip malls and malls and highways that run through everything. Um, so I'd say that was a, a real formative experience for me. And then broadly, for most Americans who want to experience good urbanism, you, you can go to Philly, DC, Boston, New York, Chicago, Savannah, Charleston. There are select cities here or there, but I think the eye-opening moment is when you go to Europe for the first time or, or Japan. I've never been to Japan or Eastern Asia, but certainly those um, development patterns are very similar. And I, I would say it was, it was probably going to Amsterdam uh, or London or, or Copenhagen I was able to do uh, very fortunate through through two or three trips and falling in love with those places and not quite understanding why we couldn't replicate those forms of building in, in the United States. I had this backing of Charlottesville is this lovely small town. Um, why couldn't that be scaled up? Yeah, obviously with, with different forms and, and different patterns um, to somewhere that could be like an Amsterdam or a London or a Paris. Um, I haven't traveled extensively. That's pretty much the extent of the places I've seen. Haven't been to Rome yet or, or other uh, meccas of urbanism and architecture. Um, but I think in experiencing those cities and places from the smaller, more organic form to these larger global capitals within, you know, seeing that there's a lot of similarities between them, even though the scale is different, reoriented how I, I thought through place. It's fascinating to hear you talk about the places that have that history because it's something that we've inherited, obviously. Every generation we discover, we reinvent, um, we sort of repurpose. And, and we've, Matt and I have talked about this before, and actually a couple of other episodes have talked about you know, the value of history. And being such a young country, we sort of like lose sight of the fact that we, we do have some places that are old. I mean, we do have, you know, Galileo was invited to, you know, come to Harvard. And, uh, and you know, we, we do have a, a history as, as narrow as it is maybe in the, in the you know, prehistoric sense. But when you start looking at all of the new things that we're building, you know, I, I draw back to history and I wonder if that we're building the quality of places that we, we have built in the past because we've always built for a hundred year lifespan. We've always built for something institutional and the core idea of having an urban fabric you know, isn't just made up of a whole bunch of individual buildings and sort of, you know, modern follies, you know, in the landscape. Um, but in many parts of the country, we've divorced ourselves from the idea of urban fabric and creating that unique culture. And, you know, like you, all the places you've mentioned in, in New Orleans and, um, and even some of the smaller Western towns, uh, the, the dusty old, um, you know, small places is, there is a unique character that's shared among those, but it's it takes understanding how those places have grown and developed 
And, and, you know, I think we're all just sort of living in that post-World War II era where we're just like, we're keep searching for those places that have that real value and, and having a hard time, I think, in reinvent, reinventing ourselves in a new way. So um, in your mind, you know, is there an ideal place uh, or an ideal type of um, development that, uh, that you want to participate in or want to create? Yeah, I think at a high level, it would be to continue the legacy of really rich and varied and diverse pieces of fabric that we saw pre-1920, pre-1940, you know, pre-World War. We've had this blip for the last 70 or 80 years, but it doesn't mean that we can't return to building at the same level of quality in the level of places. We know how to do it. We've, we've maybe forgotten over the past yeah. generation or two, or in many ways, uh, perhaps have been um, inhibited from doing it by legislation that's been the law of, of the land for all of the, the post-war um, development patterns. But I think that every, say, it depends where you are, what neighborhood, what city, what community you're in. You can't say something that might work well in, in New Orleans could work equally as well as in Santa Barbara or Los Angeles or Detroit. Um, and so I, I think at a high level, it's first saying what, what the site presents you, the opportunities that come your way. As a real estate developer, there are, we, we have notions of the perfect site or the perfect project you can do, but it, it's almost this, um, this endless pursuit to find that. And in many ways, there are trade-offs where you say, okay, well, I might not be able to imbue all of my vision on this site, but 80% or 90% is good. And maybe the other 10 to 20% are new influences that I wouldn't have considered, whether the scale is larger than I would have thought, smaller and a different type of neighborhood. Um, I would say that the through lines that run through the, the ideal type of project would be, has to be walkable. I, I think that is the most important part of creating a piece of fabric that could then be almost a nucleus that extends outwards and outwards that you have these fantastic places like a Copenhagen or, or, uh, or London or Amsterdam, these places that I visited um, that were shaping this perspective. Um, because otherwise, to your point, Mark, you're, you're almost a singular building as opposed to a part of a broader community. Um, and I think we've learned our lessons that no matter how great a singular structure is, uh, it can never make up for uh, the, the surroundings or it can never supersede uh, its neighbors or its broader community. Yeah. Um, so I think it would, it would first be identifying a place that is in a dynamic and interesting community that doesn't necessarily mean it's the most mature and it has the highest rents and it's where everyone says that's the it community. It might not look obvious. Um, I, I think in many respects uh, over the Rhine in Cincinnati could be uh, a neighborhood that has qualities where people would say five or 10 years ago, they, it had the essential bones and, and foundation to support this type of walkable and, and, and very, uh, I think, aspirational development. Um, but it, it by no means was a neighborhood that people around the country were looking to uh, as a model. And now in many ways it is. Um, so. I think there has to be the bones and that that foundation um, for a project to, to be able to um, be elevated. And then beyond that, it's primarily 
uh, building mixed use and multifamily communities. I mean, there, there's a lot of really important building typologies that every place needs, but where I come, come at this from, or, you know, is primarily understanding that, that communities that are, that have many uses uh, next to one another are more vibrant places that people want to be. So I, I think that's first and foremost, an important consideration, but for the housing component, um, perhaps more importantly on, on a macro uh, perspective, you know, we have very severe housing crises all over the country, whether you're in San Francisco or New York that are, that are most notable or smaller towns, places are feeling it very intensely. Um, and I think for the next 20 years, at the very least, if, if we're able to maintain uh, building permits and construction rates that we've seen over the last year and a half, which is more promising than what we've seen in the last 40, um, we have an opportunity to solve for that. But it, it's kind of, to, to bring it all together, a site that's in a walkable neighborhood that has the potential to create a really special place with all of its neighbors. We all have a hand to play. It's not just one master developer saying, this is what a place should look like. Um, it should have the bones to be able to expand uh, upon that, that good foundation. Um, it should have some mixing of uses, um, which ultimately is something we want to expand to in, in backyard. We're really just starting on the housing component today. Um, but then, you know, to, to tie it all up, housing is a story of, of real estate development um, in, in cities. I think perhaps the most important story of the early 21st century and ensuring that we're enabling people to take part uh, in our best communities. So I know that's a longer winded answer and it's not specific to say, I wanna build a three unit apartment with the gelateria on the ground floor in this specific neighborhood. Um, but I think you know you have to almost be, be very flexible and malleable with, with what's presented to you. Yeah, you tapped into something there, which I think is really an interesting thread of, um, <clears throat> that, that connects with the sort of American individualism and our sense that, um, you know, we were told as kids, you know, you can be anything you want. You can, you know, you can grow up and be president someday, or you can, you can, you can be a superhero or something. And we have this just natural sense of freedom and, and that our individual character and our creativity and everything has the most value. And I think it rubs up against when we start talking about building fabric is we have to kind of assign part of our ego and some of those design decisions into, well, what does the neighborhood need? And instead mm -hmm. of saying, well, what's my creativity and what's the most cool thing I could go do? And so I, I love the idea of like connecting that back into, you know, weaving the fabric back together and, you know, finding those places where there are holes where you can put something together. Um, Hey, Kobe, you've really grown a big audience with all of your tweets and your references to really high quality places. And I think you're getting a lot of interaction and uh, you, you're really kind of setting the bar high for people who can interact and, and really see and, and understand, you know, how Twitter can be a platform for both communication and building community. And one of the ones I saw was about why, uh, why and how we could build new cities based on all of the principles that you've mentioned. And I think the challenge, obviously, is, you know, governance and finance and having, you know, stable, you know, underpinnings, the foundation, as you said. Um, but tell us a little bit about your thinking on, you know, packaging up that Twitter feed and, and, and what the bigger purpose is. Yeah, it's something that's kind of taken a life of its own, which I never expected. Uh, I, I joke, and we were talking about this last week, um, that at a base level, I'm just posting pretty pictures. Right. I, I like pretty buildings. I like pretty cities and streets. And and uh, but I think that 
it, it's almost in some ways um, subliminal or maybe even surreptitious and, and hidden where the text that I'm trying to um, put with those great, pretty pictures and, and buildings is uh, the foundation of lessons for creating those types of places. Um, and it's not meant to be uh, in any way uh, like teaching, you know, to say, here's, here's the 12 step process to be able to create a place like this, but maybe taking one lesson from each one of these types of communities. Um, so so at a, to, to step back for a section, where, where this started was, um, you know, through my, my evolution of learning about place and communities and development and municipal finance and planning and all these different interacting and, and intersecting um, modes of what, or, or ways of, of creating certain places, um, I was very confused as to why we couldn't create the communities that we did in the past, especially as I'd seen a couple that were really good. You know, it's some of the projects that I've, I've since featured in, in the last three or four months. Um, I, I didn't understand if it was purely um, a lack of creativity, right? Okay, well, maybe that's one thing. People just want to build whatever they can as fast as possible. Um, I didn't know if it was um, being inhibited by legislation, zoning, or municipal governance. Um, I didn't know if it was just demand, right? If Americans now like to live in, uh, you know, 30 minutes outside of a city with a backyard and, and uh, a front yard and, and having two cars in a garage. And is that really the American dream? And the exploration was saying, well, there, there's some of all of those parts, right? But underlying it all, no matter where you're from, whether you're in a small town in Kansas or a big city like New York or, or Chicago, um, there are constant threads that people like. Um, and we know this because you can feature a project in a small town in Kansas <laughs> and a, a large project in Chicago. And the same people will say, wow, that's amazing. You know, just because you're from a, a smaller community doesn't mean you, you don't want to experience great places. It just might mean you, you yeah. haven't had access to them. Um, and so the project began, it, it's called a year of building optimism um, to say, are there people still doing great stuff showing that, um, there is demand, there is a pathway forward municipally to do this, um, and that it can practically be done. Um, is that true? Is it happening? And if so, can we broadcast those projects and the voices behind those, those projects to show other people, we can still do this. We can create great places. You don't have to fly halfway around the world to experience it. Or you don't have to go to Disneyland once a year, once every two years to be able to experience Main Street USA, and uh, you know, not have to be in your car to go everywhere, which I think is um, a distortion of uh, human uh, humanity in many ways. Right? We we have a fundamental connection to our places um, through millennia that's compounded evolutionarily. Um, but that that's where it started from, and it's now snowballed um, to trying to highlight every type of community in the country, wherever I can find it, um, these excellent projects, right? And I'm gonna plan to do it for a year. It's difficult, <laughs> um, you know, it, getting a tweet up every single day, uh, even though there are, you know, pretty pictures and, you know, maybe one or two sentences to go with them has been tough um, because I think a lot of the, um, the underlying framework for building places in America 
uh, it does make it difficult to create really high quality places. And to, to go back to the question mark of building new cities entirely or improving existing cities, um, both present really serious challenges. Um, you know, I think there's incumbent issues that you have dealing with existing cities and uh, the framework that's that's built there. It's very difficult to to go back on years of um, not not even years, decades of of bureaucracy and building new cities. You of course have questions of infrastructure and broader connections to uh, extant communities and who are you building for? You you know, in some ways, you you may be neglecting those who are who remain in cities and that certainly brings back vestiges of, of um, flight from cities and urban renewal and a lot of lessons that I would hope we've learned better um, in the last 70 years of how to create places. Um, so it's really an exploration across that spectrum to say whatever type of place you live in, whatever type of community um, you aspire to, to build or to be in, it's possible to still do that. Everything from a duplex up to an entirely new city um, that framework exists. There are people doing it, but sometimes we need to shine a light because it can feel awfully discouraging if you're in a place that that feels like um, you aren't seeing any of that, and it's only in select communities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and and those pictures those pictures really strike a you know almost visceral uh, want or, or need to be a part of the community when you see that the, those images. So I, I think what you're what you're showing right there is perfect because it, it does strike people's nerve and they know that those are great places just from just from a second of looking at them and and that's crazy that across the board most people will tell you the same thing when they see those pictures. So it it's not that elusive. It's just it's hard for some people to really put a finger on on why those places are, you know, so desirable for mm -hmm. for people. And I want to tie this back into your project right now. What is your biggest lessons learned so far with your project so far? I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing project and I, I can imagine it's got to be real difficult. So if you could distill into one or two, you know, big nuggets uh, from that, that whole experience, I'd love to hear. Oh, man, that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry um, about that. <laughs> I think the the two biggest lessons I would give, well, well first is that people are demanding uh, better modes and ways of living. Um, it, it's because the internet um, is as ubiquitous as it is, and I can go find inspiration in projects in Colombia to uh, to China, to Canada, and in, in the world around and back, um, there is a demand that, that we have something bigger. Um, so I think it dispels the, the notion that Americans want to live in these insipid communities that are totally segregated by use uh, and oftentimes by class, and that that is the demand. That's just the framework that was laid out for generations of Americans, and it's been very difficult to go beyond that. Um, I'd say that the second lesson piggybacks off of the end of the first is that um, we have a lot of do, work to do to enable the type of communities that, that we want to return to. Um, this isn't an idealized notion of America or any other place to say we should, you know, exist exactly as we did in 1920 or 1850 or 1750 or wherever the past point in the past. There are many very serious and grave challenges that, that those societies faced 
Um, and I think of romantic, romanticizing the past uh, glosses over some of those facts, but it's undeniable that it was easier in many respects to bring about um, these types of projects and visions that people now revere and want to spend time in. Um, and the mechanisms that we've built up over the last 70 years have, have ossified and now made it almost impossible in, in many places to um, create the communities that follow from the first lesson people want. So to, to bring it back, people want to live in better places. They want to live in beautiful places. They want to live in walkable, dynamic, you know, resilient places. Um, we need to let them do that. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, in, in a lot of respects, we're not. Yeah, your work really strikes a nerve with people because it, it gives them the opportunity to say, yes, that's that's what I want. That's the type of places. And it's people from a lot of diverse backgrounds. You know, you're, you're tapping into, you know, people who live in rural areas and urban areas. Um, and I think that's one of the, the great things about, you know, this, this use of technology and, and the way we've created a new forum uh, to communicate is there's lots of agreement and the systemic challenges that you mentioned are they're, 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 you know, they're not insurmountable, um, but it just takes a, a body of people um, that all agree and, and can understand that framework of like, how do we get to that place? So I, I really enjoy it, frankly, because of the conversations that it creates and, and the fact that it's living on. You know, it can be months later. Um, I'll see something pass by and I'm like, oh, I, I remember that place. I just got to go find it. I got to go find those pictures again. So yeah. to kind of continue on this discussion, we talked about we talked we threw out the word urbanism. Right. And uh, that's that's kind of one of those, along with placemaking, that's kind of been a buzzword recently that everybody likes to use. and. Yeah, really to signify a, a different way of thinking. So, or maybe not different way of thinking, but just uh, uh, puts a vocabulary behind some of the thinking that was done in the past and how it's how it's being rejuvenated more mm -hmm. so. Uh, so, you you kind of call yourself a self proclaimed self proclaimed uh, urbanist. What what does that mean to you? What it, what is that? How does that define you, I guess? Yeah, it, it's it's a great point, Matt, because um, these words can be very nebulous and very abstract. It, it's great to thoroughly. But Twitter, in some ways, I think, uh, encourages that when you have your bio and, and you have the four or five things you want to say that identify right. you. Right? Like, <laughs> right? Urbanist, placemaker, pizza lover, dad, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, and so we stick those four or five labels on us. Uh, but, but what does it really mean? Um, and I think, Mark, to your point, um, there, urbanism um, might be pinned down on, on large cities on the coasts, and people might think it's one specific type of lifestyle. Um, but there are rural communities or smaller towns that can have, in many cases, better urban and, and qualities and, and better urbanism than the largest cities. You know, there's a, a project um, the other week that I, I featured in a small town in West Virginia. Um, I, I'm forgetting the exact city. I, I should have it, but um, that I think it, it it's better than the urbanism in, I'd say, Phoenix or uh, perhaps Salt Lake City or Las Vegas, which have a lot of great things going for them. But these are communities that are 100 times the size. Um, and they, to, to my opinion, you know, can't hold a candle to the urbanism that a small town in West Virginia has. Um, and so urbanism to me really means that um, the, the foundation for creating places that are, are fundamentally walkable, 
have mixing of uses, have mixing of people, have mixing of perhaps ideas, but, but that kind of gets more into the abstract notion of, of um, creating places that are, are urbane. Um, but it, it's somewhere that you could wake up, walk out your front door, get a coffee, go to the office, go to lunch and meet with friends, um, go for a walk, maybe by the river, by a park, um, and then after work, go meet with uh, your significant other or, or more friends or coworkers and never have to rely on a car or never have to rely on uh, anything beyond your, your two feet or a bike to get around. You know, I think that's the real foundation of, of urbanism that you wanna create communities, whether they're 500 people or, or, or 500,000 or 5 million that enable those types of lifestyles. Right. There's a lot of uh, labels and umbrellas that we put our, you know, new development or new development patterns in. And obviously, like, you know, the Congress for New Urbanism, I think really focuses a lot on that. And, and different organizations have different focuses from, you know, strong towns or, or ULI or, um, you know, complete streets, um, smart cities, there's a whole lot of labels. The one that I'm really kind of keen on and, and really excited about learning more is how we can infuse equitable, equitable development into this process. And to your point, like you're, you're, you're naming all of those things that as, as I'm hearing, I'm like, oh, this is, this is how we really should be developing communities. But in your mind, you know, what does equitable, equitable development look like? Yeah, it's another kind of buzzword and, and abstract notion that, that gets thrown around. And uh, I think potentially it, it could be damaging because it's a really important concept. So we can't just throw around equitable development or urbanism or placemaking uh, and say those words without meaning behind them. Um, equitable development, uh, what it effectively means to me is to create more just places. Um, it, it doesn't ensure that everyone should be in the penthouse at, at the top of the tallest tower or that everyone should be living in a $3 million townhouse in the nicest neighborhood in the city. And that, that's sometimes the pushback that, that I get when I say we, we, we have to work towards creating more equitable places. And people will say, yeah, well, you know, not everyone can live in Beverly Hills or not everyone can live on Fifth Avenue. And I say that that's not what it means. It means to to ensure that the communities across a city or cities across a region or regions across a country um, have an equal shot. And there have been places that have historically been neglected um, in every city and every community in America um, that we need to shine that light on. So it's saying instead of all of our dollars going into one concentrated core, um, let's try to spread that love a little bit. And let's make sure, especially that communities that have been historically marginalized um, are being considered in that process and that you're working alongside them. So instead of saying, I, you know, I, I'm a big developer with a lot of money. I know what's best for you. Here's how your community should look. It's not right. You, you should have a conversation with them and give them the tools to have self-determination and, and, and uh, self-autonomy to, or I guess it's redundant, but autonomy over um, the types of places they create, but to enable them to do that. And I think that's, that's where some confusion uh, gets brought about. It's not guaranteeing outcomes. It's, um, it's really getting people to the same starting line and, and having uh, that light that's shown on them uh, equally. Yeah, I want to start here and kind of continue on this discussion a little bit more and then transition a little bit further to a broader sense of equity. Mm -hmm. uh, but is there a solution in your mind for providing more equitable developments 
with the current situation with current roadblocks? That's the, the, the trillion dollar question, right? To creating better communities. Um, I think I'll first start more narrowly and, and then I'll go beyond there. I think it's a mistake to um, look to communities that have historically been marginalized or been neglected and say, we're going to build new, which is good. That's a start that 90% of communities in America aren't willing to do. So good, that's a good start. But say that we're exclusively going to make this affordable. We're going to ensure that those of a certain economic class uh, or economic group or class of people remain concentrated in this area. Um, that is, I think, tipping the scales in a very different direction. What equitable development looks like to me is more mixed income and mixed use developments, such that we're not segregating by place and use and, and type of people, which I don't need to dive into the historical reasons why those are, are, are miserable failings of societal building. Um, so to say, are, are there, but you know, the issue within that, right, is that if these communities have struggled and they're finally receiving investment, those communities are certainly going to have some pushback and say, well, we need something built for us. We haven't had 50 or 100 or 200 years of, of love that's been shared around here. So we want it to only be for us. Um, and I can certainly understand that. Um, I think our legislation in many ways um, creates a barrier to saying um, for those who represent those communities to say, well, we can only like stamp it, you know, in our, our latest plan or in our latest zoning code um, or carve out certain funds that these communities will exclusively be affordable for residents of these neighborhoods. I think that's a real mistake that 20, 30, 50 years from now, people will be looking back and saying, we, we didn't learn the lessons of the mid 20th century or yeah. the, the late 19th century or late 17th century or historically where we allow groups to, um, to self-isolate and whatever pattern that looks like. That may be a neighborhood that's been cut off by a highway uh, that doesn't have access to the broader city. It may be an exurban subdivision that one needs to drive 15 minutes to go to the closest grocery store, or it might be, um, you know, less delineated boundaries within a city that uh, has a, a different compositional nature. So to break down the barriers for equitable development, I think there absolutely have to be funds allocated for more affordable housing. Um, but it's really taking a step back and saying, we need to loosen the reins to allow enough building to be completed uh, or to be carried out so that we, we don't have this intense um, hierarchy of luxury buildings versus purely affordable buildings where the middle gets squeezed out either up to the luxury or down to the affordable. And there's nothing in between because that's where all the magic happens. And that's where equity lives. Yeah. But I, we can go on and on and on about that. <laughs> I think it's worth diving into that because I think there's a confluence of, of three things that I've observed. And as you said, it's, um, you know, the, there's expensive things which have an asset class and there's affordable, which is an asset class. And you, you mentioned, you know, those in the middle, but more, I think, the economic middle, not, you know, the housing type middle. Yep. <laughs> um, but somewhere somewhere there is we have a building type that is mixed use and it's not fully defined for a lot of people what mixed use means. Mm -hmm. um, I see a lot of vacant storefronts on ground floors of buildings because in the last two years or so, we haven't had or needed that much retail. Yep. Um, and so I think that the, the architectural typology of those buildings is not a clear enough class for our finance partners to look at and understand the comps, understand how it fits into the larger model, 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's easier to finance something small and simple or something that's clearly understood because it appeals to that one demographic. The other part of it is it's changing a little bit with um, some of the new building codes, but certain types of buildings are limited financially to be from being built. Because if you have a three-story walk-up, you know, you can do that with an exterior stair. All of a sudden, if you go four stories, you need an elevator. If you go five stories, you need a podium. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that missing, you know, urbanist type stuff. I mean, I think average in Paris is actually nine stories. Yep. To do that in the United States, it has to be steel and concrete. And, and, and also then there's a certain limiting size to those buildings without doing a lot of fire barriers and different, you know, different um, architectural things. The confluence of all three of those things of not having a good typology, not having a good finance structure to fund those, those missing middle or those sort of higher, higher middle buildings and then also the building code that once you go over three stories, it becomes exceptionally expensive um, to put those together, not to mention land assembly, not to mention, you know, the entire layer of municipal regulations and codes and zoning and setbacks and everything. And so I love that we've identified this core of equitable, equitable development that is an ideal that is something we've built for generations, you know, four and five story buildings. But we have a, a litany of problems um, that are preventing that from happening. And so is there any is there any one thing that we can do or do we have to kind of redefine all of these kind of challenges into one effort um, and then start to educate the public and start taking them down one by one? It's so well said, Mark. And that's the the difficulty where you get into the um, into the weeds, taking my urbanist hat off. Right. And, and you know, creating these urbanist ideals and these communities is great. The flowery languages back to the pretty pictures. We should be creating these communities. Why don't we do it? And it's very yeah. popular to say that on Twitter, you know, however many words you say it less than hundred percent. <laughs> very easy to say that. How does it actually happen? Um, that's where I, I tend to write on my medium page, you know, 5,000 word uh, rants about <laughs> land use regulations and, and, and lender requirements and building code requirements that, that make it very difficult for these places to be realized. And I, I think the communication around that is, is critical, but very difficult. Um, I think I feel very good about being able um, to move the conversation more towards let's create these type of places because that's what's in demand. We know the demand is there. We know wherever you are in America, people want to live in better places. How does a sausage get made? Um, lending is, I'd say, I'd say lending, um, land use regulations, so zoning um, and, and park minimums, stuff of that nature. And, um, and building code provisions are, are almost the three-headed monster to deal with to actually get these places built. Um, from a lender's perspective, we, we run into this all the time with our projects. If they're less than a million dollars in hard costs, if they're less than four, sometimes five units, and I even heard this week, less than eight units, um, traditional banks won't lend on them. Um, if they're not in a certain neighborhood, if they're not uh, to a certain design center, if they have too much architectural embellishment, uh, if they have a mixed use, you're going to put a coffee shop underneath, you know, three apartments. There's no way that would fly. How dare you? How dare you do that, right? Um, that, that we don't underwrite to those standards. Um, or, you know, okay, we're willing to take a risk on you, but we'll only give you 30% loan to, to cost in your project um, at higher interest rates, which is unshoulderable. So you can't get those places built. So I think first you have to, to be able to show lenders um, when you're underwriting these types of deals or these types of places, 
the numbers pencil out. And not only do they pencil out, um, I think those numbers are conservative because there will be so much demand to live in these places, um, which is unfortunately why the most desirable neighborhoods in America are so expensive. There's so few of them. We have a paucity of really good places. Um, So those homes get bid up. I mean, in the West Village or Brooklyn Heights, which are two of the most expensive neighborhoods in New York, um, $8 million is the ground floor for a townhome that in some ways a fixer upper, you know, in, in Bed-Stuy, which 15 years ago was, um, you know, it's a fantastic, strong neighborhood, was not a neighborhood that people from Manhattan uh, would have moved out to in search of a townhome. You're looking at $2.5 million for a fixer upper. There's just not enough neighborhoods that have these bones and these are the missing middle type of neighborhoods, right? Yeah. Um, so you need to be able to tell that story to lenders and say, the demand is there, the pricing is there, you just have to let us do it. We need better financing terms that our friends who are building 500 unit five over ones, uh, you know, 15 minutes outside the city or 500 unit, um, 1,000 unit subdivisions are getting, right? So you need to level the, the, the uh, playing field there um, to enable those places to be built. Once you have the lender buy-in, um, you know, because obviously that has to occur within the framework of, of um, the legislative framework that's laid out, you have to go to the cities um, and say, these, um, there's not enough of these communities. We need to change the underlying regulations to allow um, our cities to have more of these places. And you can show the pictures, show, you know, show a street study, sit on a corner that, that is highly trafficked for 20 minutes say, look how many people are here and love to be here. Wouldn't this be great? Two streets away <laughs> that for no reason other than some lines on a map can't sustain this. Of course, that's madness, right? We should be able to incrementally um, allow the market to respond to where people want to be. You know, I think there is oftentimes when, when you get to the municipal level and you start talking to community basis, um, some, some fear mongering that's misplaced where people say, well, we, you know, I don't want my community looking like, uh, you know, in San Diego. I don't want it looking like downtown San Diego. Well, it wouldn't. You know, downtown San Diego looks the way it does because land prices are so expensive that there must be skyscrapers and there must be larger buildings. But if you're 20 minutes outside of the core, uh, there's no reason why you couldn't have a coffee shop on the ground floor and two apartments above. Uh, there's some, you know, something's lost in translation there where everything gets scaled up to the extremes. And so I think. It's about showing to cities you can still enable this framework um, to create better places, and that won't give you the extremes. It'll just say, "Hey, we're going to allow this under a certain amount of fee." And, and there's form-based codes. There's different, you know, provisions that you can do for that. Um, or there's no zoning at all, which is a, a different conversation. Um, and then, you know, finally, just to wrap up, you know, this three is is on the building codes. Um, Mark to your point in Paris, you know, seven, eight, nine-story buildings that are these houseman style um, apartment buildings are some of the most admired structures in the world. They don't have a concrete podium of a story or two stories, you know, they, they don't have sprinklers on every floor and you know what, I, I think it's fine. So there is an overkill from that perspective. And it's not as simple as saying, if we just show pretty pictures to the city and people wanna be in these neighborhoods, if we just show the numbers to, uh, lenders, and if we just show the safety standards to the IBC or whoever it may be, then we'll have better places. That, of course, simplifies it far beyond what it is. Um, but those are the steps. I think those are the three that you've, you know, excellently shown those pathways that you really need to target. Um, and, and, hope- 
No, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to tie it up and say, hopefully you can grind away at those (laughs) as long as they, yeah, it's tough. (laughs) And not to mention the fact that there's um, competitive capital out there. And so if you're going to provide something that's a higher quality, that's going to provide, you know, mixed income or affordability without subsidy, um, you've got to compete with dollars that can be invested somewhere else and at a higher return with maybe a less risky, you know, investment. So all of those uh, pieces, I think, I feel like there's an uh, infographic out there that should show the challenges of what it takes to create the type of communities that we're talking about that we were all passionate about and are being built. It's just that the hurdles to get there are are just like almost extraordinary. So, you yeah, know, I, I think that, that infographic would be like a scroll that never ends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you un, you unscroll and it keeps going, and going, and going. It, it it scrolls through us and our generation, and the next generation has to pick it up and exactly. and learn the scroll again. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about uh, you know the principles and equity, uh, but tell us a little bit about your development work and uh, and some of the things you're excited about. Yeah. So we have three projects that we're working on right now in San Diego, which we're, we're really excited about all in this, all, all of what we've talked about so far. You know, they're in walkable neighborhoods. They're um, all these missing middle housing typologies um, ranging from three units to uh, I think we'll have 11 at our largest on stabilization. And those are just the three that we currently have in, in, in the pipeline. We're looking at others um, that we're partnering with on, on the property management side, third party side. That may be 20 units, probably, hopefully not more than 30, staying within that band of two to 30. Um, But what we're really excited about is this opportunity that historically, um, well, for the last 80 years, has been prohibited. To be able to add housing in in those neighborhoods that people most want to live in, that these lots may have been a single family home that was a shack, you know, or, or a building that might be dilapidated in some senses, but it didn't make sense when you're underwriting these deals to improve it. You know, the, the, the land value might not have supported um, the structures that, that you would have had to put on in, in, in the replacement costs therein. Um, unlocking those in small ways, there's much more work to be done. Um, development regulations so that you can create these types of assets that people have historically loved. And if you go to cities around the world today, still live in today, they just, they're all 100 years old because that was the last time we allowed them to be built. Um, to kind of riff on that legacy is something that we're really excited about and to create these types of housing typologies um, that that have been prohibited um, with that modern flair is very cool. Um, awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to share some of those too because the uh, it's, it's such a difficult thing to do, like you said, uh, and it's hard to get investors on board when sometimes your your return isn't really, you know, the most beautiful thing, but you, you understand it's more than the return and that's, that's the tough part. And I think uh, what you guys doing, is pretty amazing. So let's, let's broadcast this into the future a little bit, looking back, you know, after a hundred years or or whatnot, we, we Google backyard and, and your name and what, what would it say about you? What, more than 270 characters or whatever. What would, what would it say about you and your legacy? I, the L word is such a big one. I'm so young. It's, it's <laughs> really, really think about it. But, um, you know, I think our, our ideal for, for backyard to, to start there would be, um, we'd love to grow this to be a national housing brand where if you're living in San Diego and you have to move to Atlanta or Charlotte or Seattle 
or DC or, or Minneapolis, that your first thought for long-term branded real estate will be backyard. Um, similar to the way um, in many respects, though so it's, it's a different industry um, or different skew, not a different industry. Um, when WeWork was first, and it's, you know, it's almost verboten to mention WeWork, but, but I think the pathway that they um, drew was a very interesting one. Um, they took a traditional asset class, which is office space, that was in need of a, a refresh. They added excellent design language, um, a very, very strong brand. They gave a tech-enabled property management service. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't much more than that. It was a lot of thoughtfulness in the quality of the spaces. And um, I think there, there will be critics that say they could be better, they could, you know, whatever it is. Um, but they created that brand that I think transcended in many respects what people thought office space could be take away all the layers of, you know, I don't know if you guys are watching any of the, the shows that have come out or the books or, uh, you know, on, on the WeWork drama, take away all of the flowery language, um, which I think gets people in trouble sometimes and just say at the core product level, what does that look like? It's a really good product that people really like. And that's, that's why it's scaled. I would love Backyard to not have a WeWork story, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, and go on that trajectory, but to say that people... Um, the way they think of multifamily housing, historically, it, it, they, there might be bad stigmas associated with it um, because we've not allowed these types of buildings to be built. We've not allowed them to receive the, the requisite funds um, to be maintained. Um, that it's rethinking how this asset class with a really strong brand, great design language, throwing it all on tech-enabled property management experience, um, very thing, simple things that I think will, well, simple in theory, difficult to execute, will be table stakes in 10 to 15 years. Um, people associate with it and say, you know, I really want to live in a backyard property. I want, I want to be wherever I am. I know it's not going to look exactly the same because we can't copy and paste our places. That would be the absolute wrong thing to do. Um, I'd love to, to live in somewhere that rhymes with, with, with these kind of uh, things that they're doing. Um, so that, that I think is the vision for backyard and is that a hundred units, is it 500, a thousand, 10,000, 50,000, who knows what the future brings for us. Um, I'd love to be sitting here with you guys in, you know, two years, three years, four years, five years, and say, we've got 5,000 units and we're one of the leading real estate brands in America. You know, I think that's something that we've identified, um, as a whole, yes, you have the missing middle, um, for the housing typologies themselves, but also, real estate doesn't really have any strong brands associated with it. You have some that are single family operators. You have some that are larger institutionally backed firms. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of people doing good work. Um, I don't know if there's a brand that is entirely aspirational today. I don't know if that's even, you know, that's our thesis that we'd like to provide something for that. You know, I'd love to say that, that we're going to be at the forefront of creating this branded experience in this missing middle. Um, that people would say automatically resonate with them. I want to live in a walkable neighborhood. I want to live in a dynamic place. I want to live in a beautiful home. That's what a backyard is. Um, you know, and as for personal legacy, I'm, I'm less concerned about that. I think there's, there's so many um, interesting people doing incredible work. And if I can be a part of that group that, you know, throughout, throughout the country, throughout the world, wherever it may be, um, that's pushing in some ways these, these thoughts forward, that, that'd be amazing. I mean, I think um, there's this notion in real estate, uh, in, 
especially in um, in more financial industries, that's very transactional. Um, that there's this uber competition, and that's not. I'm an athlete, but like that's not who I am. I'm not, you know, I'm not a killer be killed, and uh, I hate my competition. Uh, you know, there are more than enough uh, homes that can be built to go around that we need to build. I believe we're six million homes short in America, and that's gonna. It's not like housing needs stop, you know, every 10 to 20 years. It's a very progressive um, and fluid number. Um, I would I would hope to be a part of a new generation of people who are building the type of communities that um, that we revere in our past. It doesn't ever need to say, you know, left go its place or, or Kobe Street or whatever it might be. Um, but the my, my you know, you know, who knows? 200 years. I don't think I'll be around. Um, but success for me and a successful legacy would be no one needs to know the name on, on the building. No one needs to know, um, you know, who, who delivered that, but that one, the things that we build hopefully are still standing. Um, 50 years from now is, is a massive feat. Um, hundred years now, whatever it might be, that would be incredibly rewarding. Um, I mean, I, I can't really express how, how gratifying that would be. Um, but beyond that, that if it's just two seconds, three seconds, five seconds, someone stops and says, huh, I, I like that. That's, that's pretty cool. And then they move on in their day. Those are little moments that I think when they're stitched together, create the fabric of really um, gratifying experiences and, and what make urbanism and, you know, in, in urban life and, uh, and all these things, very rewarding. Um, these little hits, these little endorphin hits that, you know, maybe it becomes your path that you walk by it every single day. And you say, you know, it's, it's two seconds, but I get to see that building or I get to see that place. And it makes me feel better for a second or two. And maybe I go on. And if you have enough people who are doing that next to each other, you know, let's say Kobe is here, Matt's there, Mark is there all on the street. They should not all look the same. They should all have our own personalities imbued in them. They should have our own styles imbued in them. But if they have the same foundation that we're going to, you know, create walkable places, we're not going to have a lot of parking minimums. We're not going to have massive setbacks. We're going to create communities built by many hands and all of the beauty that comes with that. You suddenly have a situation to bring it all the way back to the beginning um, where you go from a smaller community like a Charlottesville. Or, or even smaller than that, some towns have talked about in West Virginia or in Oklahoma or, or perhaps in Nebraska, to a place that's like a Copenhagen or an Amsterdam or a London, that all of these hands have contributed to this incredible project of city building. Um, and that is the work, right? That is the great work of humanity, at least in, in my opinion. That's to be a part of a shared legacy without any name and notoriety, but that at one point, someone would get to enjoy the fruits of all of our collective labor, just as we enjoy them from generations in the past, would be, you know, the most gratifying thing. There's so much hidden about the story of real estate development. I'd be curious if we could put our heads together and um, start to tell that story in sort of like a, you know, a documentary style or, or sell it to some production company because spanning geographies and spanning urban context and um, all, all of the different regulatory pieces that we were talking about earlier, I would want to see that process and see what other people are going through. And so we, we get it, you know, on Twitter a little bit, you know, in little snippets, but um, I think we got to have another longer discussion later about um, what it looks like to go through this process. So the public can understand, you know, that this isn't just an entirely money-making endeavor. 
you know, it's not entirely about, you know, just business, um, you know, improving communities comes from having a heart and having those principles that you set up that you expect of yourself to, to live up to. And, uh, and so we'll have that longer conversation. Uh, I think this is this conversation galvanizes it for me that we need a better communication tool with the public so that they can understand the process. They can understand the complexity and the roadblocks and the challenges that occur of why we can't get the type of communities that we really want. Mm-hmm. And so what do you think about that? I think it's amazing. I think it's back to, you know, th- this notion of how do you go from picture to 5,000 words explaining this notion, it's very difficult. And if there's a medium that uh, is perhaps film or short style documentaries, I know we, we talked a little bit about that can communicate that. And I think there are people who are starting to do really good work on that front um, to show that it's, it's not a, this notion of legacy, Matt, it, you know, it is not just um, an individual legacy, but a built legacy of a place and a heritage of that place that when you think about New Orleans, you're, it's so evocative of certain images and you know what that heritage is um, that go beyond the pure numbers. Cause like that, that is something that is a huge part of real estate development. Nothing gets built without the requisite financing and returns. Um, and that's kind of, you know, to, to put a, I guess a cap on, or, you know, an exclamation point on all this, maybe it's a very dull period actually, uh, is that you have to have this Janus space when you're a developer and perhaps, you know, um, like most of the people you talk with and, and, and you yourselves, um, when you're looking at the built environment, who say, we want to have these incredible communities on the one side, but on the other, what's the nitty gritty of actually getting it done? Um, you know, they have to meet certain return thresholds. You can't do it at cost. You can't massively subsidize it because there's not enough money or tax revenue to do it. So it's coming to that understanding of there must be returns. They're mandated by certain fundamental principles of economics um, and land use economics, I'd say. Um, But great. If we all have an understanding that we just can't wish these places into existence because they cost money, um, that's a whole other conversation to have, which I think the nuance is lost on Twitter. Um, There's this notion that developers are, you know, greedy money grubbers who only care about money. Certainly there may be some who fit that mold. Uh, You know, it may not be unfair. But there are a lot of those, and I, I would hope to include you know, us in that conversation, who um, say it is something that we need to do. It's a way for us to make a living, but it's a means for us to create the type of places that we want to live in. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's where the story goes. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fundamental truth. I mean, really, as, as much as we'd love to build something, just, just to build, um, it's got, it's got to make money, right? It, it, you can't you can't build it and uh, just break even and hope for the best, and you you're never making another one, right? Uh, you right. you may you just won't last very long. But uh, <laughs> um, so is, was there anything that we maybe didn't get to, or didn't cover as we wrap up here that you think that we should cover real quick, or a question that we didn't ask that. Um, you think is is integral to this whole story that we've kind of been weaving this this time. I mean, I could talk with you guys for for hours and hours. <laughs> yeah, same here, man. There's so much to be explored, and that's what's fascinating about cities and real estate development and architecture and design and urban planning. Um, I think these are the most comprehensive industries. They they, they really touch everything. I mean, there's an article um, that that I've been 
chewing on that I'll, maybe we'll send. And if you guys put in the show notes, it's, it's called the housing theory of everything um, mm -hmm. written, written by works in progress um, that it, it's, it, it touches on a lot of these truths that um, the built environment uh, is how we experience 98 or 99% of our, our lives. It touches every single part of our lives. And um, there's, there's rarely moments, even when you're on trails, <laughs> you know, you really have to be deep in the wilderness to, to get beyond the reach of human ends. And so the obligation that we have in, in shaping our places, whether it's as a planner or a developer or a designer, uh, you know, a legislator, a contractor, whoever it might be in the process is profound. Um, and those conversations, you know, are, are very expensive, but, you know, I, I really, today was so much fun for me. And I think we, we touched on so much always more to talk on too, but just really appreciative. And, and thank you guys for the time um, for having me on. And this is, this is, you know, the highlight of, of my week of my month. To be <laughs> same, you know, same. I love these kind of conversations because, you know, it's, you know, we, we really talked high level um, for much of the conversation, but we did bring it down to the, the nitty gritty, which I think is, is important to not forget. Mm -hmm. um, so no, I appreciate all your time here. Can you give us a little bit more about how we can find out more about you, Kobe, and where people can learn more about what you're doing, your projects, uh, not only your development projects, but your own personal projects? And, uh, yeah. Start so stuff. thank you, Matt. Uh, I'm, uh, you, you can find some of the stuff on Backyard at livebackyard.co. The site is basically just a landing page right now. We're working on it behind the scenes, but that's where there'll be a lot of Backyard stuff, which we're very excited about. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Kobe Lefko, and same on Medium. Uh, it tends to be, you know, there's not many people named Kobe Lefko. It's running around, so uh, Kobe Lefko has been a good handle I can get across a couple platforms. So uh, that's usually it. And always feel free, uh, you know, anybody who's in, who's listening and might be interested in uh, any anything that we've talked about today please reach out to me. I'm, I'm always happy to talk with folks. And, you know, that's how Matt and I got connected, um, which is, we, we don't all exist in isolation here, right? Yeah. The, the internet and social media is a really powerful tool to connect with, you know, awesome and inspiring people like, like Matt and Mark here, um, which has been really gratifying for me. And I think the more connections that, that we can all make with one another, uh, the better it'll be, the better our communities will be, the, the more discourse we'll have. And, uh, you know, it's all good things. Yeah. Absolutely. No, and again, thank you again for all your time today. Uh, can't wait till our next discussion. Absolutely.